This is Peace Talks Radio, the radio series and podcast on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls, today with Megan Camrick. Each year, about a million people in the United States attempt to take their own lives. Another 10 million people seriously consider suicide. Those rates tend to rise in troubling years, like during the coronavirus pandemic of 2020-2021. These statistics became very real for us at Peace Talks Radio when a talented young producer named Hannah Colton, who did several episodes for us, took her own life in November 2020. On this episode, we talk with psychologist Dr. Ursula Whiteside about her efforts to stop suicide. And later, we also talk about the difficulty journalists face as frontline responders with Bruce Shapiro, executive director of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma. And we'll finish our program with some highlights of Hannah's work on Peace Talks Radio. And we'll be talking frankly about suicide and trauma on this episode. If you are in crisis and need to talk to someone, you can text 741741 to reach a counselor at the crisis text line. You can also call the suicide hotline at 800-273-8255. Those numbers again, the text number is 741741 or the suicide hotline 800-273-8255. Hannah Colton was only 29 and was serving as interim news director at KUNM in Albuquerque when she died. Here's one of her colleagues from KUNM, Megan Camrick, who also produces for Peace Talks Radio and produced today's episode. Hannah stepped in to lead our newsroom in a year that became one of the most traumatic and intense any of us have ever experienced. 2020 gave us a global pandemic, a resulting economic calamity, and then mass protests for racial justice. Of course, it also turned out to be one of the most divisive election years in history. Hannah was passionate about elevating voices from communities that often go unheard in our media. And she was fearless about pursuing stories, working hundreds of hours to cover protests, and also guiding us in our coverage. She was passionate about equity and racial justice, and she was incredibly gifted at talking with all kinds of people and bringing forth their stories. Hannah was also managing depression, and that proved more challenging during the pandemic, as it has for millions of people. The reasons behind suicide are complex and often unknowable, but we wanted to talk about possible solutions with Dr. Ursula Whiteside. She's a licensed clinical psychologist and CEO of NowMattersNow.org. It's a site dedicated to providing tools for people struggling with suicidal thoughts. She has herself struggled with anxiety and depression and works to ensure that the voices of those with lived experience are included in these conversations. Dr. Ursula Whiteside, many of us who are left behind after a friend or family member goes through with suicide are plagued by guilt and a lot of questions. What are warning signs that someone may be considering suicide? Well, I want to say to you and I want to say to other people who've lost someone to suicide that sometimes there's nothing obvious going on and it's almost impossible to see. You know, you can't be inside someone's head and that guilt and wishing you could know then what you know now doesn't tend to serve us well. You know, that's on people like myself and the public health system and the the medical system to better train family members, friends, people who are struggling 
to support each other, to reach out. The vast majority of signs of suicide also just mean that the person's in a really bad spot, unhappy, probably experiencing some depression, anxiety. Extended periods of difficulty sleeping is something to watch out for. Extended periods of withdrawal and also irritability or pushing people away. Definitely talking about suicide is something that would be, a, you know, something very important to follow up on, to ask that person what they mean, to have them explain what's going on with them in their life, you know, with real curiosity before trying to convince them of anything, you know, whether or not to do that. Those are some of the, you know, the most important ones. And there's a great list on American Foundation for Suicide Prevention.org, AFSP.org, um, where you can find more information. We will put that on our website along with other resources for sure. You have talked about in your various talks that people who are experiencing suicidal ideation might have this, literally this feeling of being on fire. Can you say more about that and what your work with survivors has brought to light about these feelings? We use the word suicide ideation a lot in the mental health world, and um, we're starting to realize it's uh, maybe more preferable if we use suicidal thoughts. So I'll try and use suicidal thoughts, but you can correct me when I say the suicide ideation. One of the things that happens is that there's like a whole spectrum of different types of suicidal thoughts from the, oh, I wouldn't mind if I didn't wake up tonight, you know, tomorrow morning. I wouldn't mind if I didn't wake up tomorrow morning to the, oh my gosh, I feel so intensely awful and uncomfortable that I would do anything to not feel this way. And that second edge of things is more what I mean when I say I'm on fire emotionally, that it's gotten so hot that it feels almost as if it would be similar to being on fire physically. Then in those cases, it makes sense that people do things they would never otherwise do because they're in so much pain and uh, they can't find a way to feel differently. You have said that for someone with really strong emotions, having suicidal thoughts can actually help them feel less bad. Why, why mm-hmm. is it helpful to understand this dynamic? Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's some physiological data that backs this up, too, that when the brain has an idea of relief, even if it's not acting on that relief, it can get some relief. So what I mean by that is the idea of not being in so much pain and the pain having passed, just the idea of it can help some people cope. That translates to suicide. For some people, thinking about suicide can make the current moment less painful. But there's a lot of problem with operating that world and getting used to using suicidal thoughts to cope with pain. So this idea that sometimes when people turn to suicide, there's been a surge of emotions. It's very sudden. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about that. As part of a research project, we interviewed a whole group of people about their suicide attempts. In general, their lives were not going well. And on the day that they attempted which for those folks that I interviewed, they had not had a specific plan to harm themselves. Uh, There was usually something that happened, like a fight or something that seemed like the end of a relationship or something that seemed like it was going to be impossible moving forward, or at least it felt that way in in the moment. And the combination of like emotions being fairly high with this additional thing that had some kind of 
really important meaning to the person, sort of pushed them over the edge. And they made an attempt when they hadn't planned, when they hadn't had much forethought into it, and it really wasn't anticipated. I think there's something really important about knowing that this is a thing that allows us to do something differently. Because we haven't really been thinking that much about this suicidal experience. We think a lot about the person who writes the letter, who finishes up their will, um, who like takes steps in advance. But we don't think as much about what would you do to intervene and support somebody who may be at risk of having this overwhelming urge happen. It's never just one thing that causes someone to take their life or to attempt to take their life. But then sometimes it can be this combination of a whole bunch of different factors. And then one especially intense thing may put them at greater risk. People need to be prepared for this experience. At some point for all of us, we're going to have this these really intense moments. And many of us will say, yeah, I know exactly what you're talking about, where my stress level was 100 out of 100. And I just didn't even know what to do. We need to prepare everybody for what to do, whether or not suicidal thoughts come into our minds, because at the basis of it, it's just really, really intense emotion. And how do you handle really, really intense emotion? Because it affects most of us in a very similar way. Dr. Whiteside, what steps can people take if they are find themselves overwhelmed suddenly by these intense feelings that you describe? And um, one of the things that we know works really well to help reset intense emotions is to use cold. The research that's been done is all about people filling a bowl or the sink with very cold water, even putting some ice in there and bending at the waist while holding your breath, uh, trying to do that for 30 seconds while your face is submerged under the water and then coming back up and taking a deep breath. And doing that on repeat, three to five minutes, changes the way that your uh, vagus nerve or vagal nerve responds. So there's this nerve that runs between your brain and your major organs. It innervates your organs. If you can get that nerve to change its tone, change the way it's tautness, <laughs> you can essentially change the messaging between your organs and your brain. And, and trick your brain into thinking that you're becoming more relaxed. That is fascinating. Uh, yeah, <laughs> I agree. <laughs> and I, I use it all the time um, when I need to. I happen to be one of those people who has intense emotions. And it doesn't necessarily mean I'm having suicidal thoughts if I'm using cold. It just means like I'm so overwhelmed that I can't think clearly anymore. And it's not helping anybody at this point. Are there other things people can do if they're in that crisis moment? <laughs> When you're in a really emotional state, that you, we should hold off making important decisions. We're not seeing clearly enough to make decisions. And this is a time when people make those decisions that they can't take back. And I got a lot of great feedback from a group of young people that I interviewed about them getting through these, we call hot moments, being on fire emotionally. And they said, it wasn't so helpful when people said, you're not always going to be feel this way. What was more helpful, they said, was when someone would say, hey, we're just going to work on getting through the next 30 minutes. What does that look like? It, it does take creativity. Um, so what I might scan through my head is like, what does this person like? What calms this person down? For some people, it's 
you know, having them sit on the couch, sit really close to them, you know, put your arms around them. I try to get people to drink a big cold glass of water as another way to help Hmm. change their physiology or put an ice pack behind their head. I'll practice breathing and say, I'm going to start breathing. I want you to breathe with me. And then as I'm doing that, I'll make my exhale a little longer than my inhale because that's a a type of breathing that can help slow somebody down a little bit faster than just deep breathing. I definitely weave in humor. I might pull up a picture of, you know, the cat on the phone. And I also will say, like, just, you know, I'm not going to do this perfectly. So just bear with me. I'm just do my best to be with you because I love you. And um, just hang in here with me. If you just tune into Peace Talks Radio, I'm Megan Kamrick. I'm talking with Dr. Ursula Whiteside. She's a licensed clinical psychologist and CEO of NowMattersNow.org. And if you're in crisis and need to talk to someone, you can text 741-741 to reach a counselor. You can also call the suicide hotline at 800-273-8255. You helped create an organization called Now Matters Now, and you're the CEO. What is the site? What is the mission behind it? This resource is intended to bring videos of people talking about how they use coping strategies called dialectical behavior therapy skills. There's also resources for healthcare providers to receive training. And there's training on the website for family members and friends or people who are struggling in something called micro-intervention, so things that help you that you can do in three to five minutes that can help with mood and, and getting through hard times. There's a safety plan. There's a crisis lines page and crisis steps, like some of the crisis steps I told you about with cold and no important decisions. There's another step called um, eye contact, which is explained on the website. Why is eye contact important? Eye contact because it is one of the with strongest stimuli, when people are in an intense suicidal mindset, like they are super focused on suicide. It's almost like the rest of the room is gray um, or black, and suicide is in bright red letters in front of them, and that's all they can see. And you're, what mm-hmm. you're trying to do is put something else in front of their eyes, right? Like something else to wash out some of that red in their brain. And eye contact is one of the most powerful stimuli that we know. It's so powerful. And so what that would mean is is if you were really struggling, you would say to someone like, hey, I just can't get out of my head right now. You know, could we talk for a little bit? Could you look at me for a little while? You are a person with lived experience and you built this website with others who also have lived experience. Why is that important? People who have been there have really clear thoughts about what they think would be helpful. And a lot of the feedback we got early on was that Hearing other people's stories is useful. Hearing other people's explanations of how to do things. There's other research that supports this too, that for, for a long time, just take a sidetrack here, mm-hmm. you know, you weren't supposed to talk about suicide in the media because it could increase the risk of other people. They use the word copycat, which is a, like a really crappy term. But a newer researcher, Neiden Krotenthaler, his research is finding is that talking about suicide and stories of success and how people got through it can actually be protective. So we we kind of combined those two things, both the want of the people with lived experience, but also the research that says that this could be helpful. Hmm. And yeah, and the good news is, you know, uh, at least for people who visit this website and who are reporting 
in, we have a survey that comes up, pe people who are reporting really severe thoughts of suicide, they have significantly fewer suicidal thoughts in the minutes that they're watching videos on the website. So we know that at least it's looking like visiting the website can be helpful at least in the short term for people. Now, hmm. we don't know what that effect would be long term. Many people who attempt suicide may also be trying to manage depression or other mental health challenges. How can these accelerate or lead to suicide? One of the especially cruel things about depression is that the urges that go along with it are to withdraw and to stop reaching out and to stop making real connection. One of the simple things that you can do if you're you're depressed and you're starting to withdraw is to force yourself to do small things. So an example would be to send a to send a text to somebody who you know you're fairly certain won't judge you that you trust, maybe even somebody who's like who's been depressed themselves and is open about it. And at the minimum say I'm thinking about you and send a picture of you guys together or you know something that makes that text bumps it up a little bit in connection. Even more effective would be to say like, hey, this morning really sucks. I'm having trouble getting out of bed. I'm committing to jumping in the shower and I'll text you after I've taken a shower. Those are a couple ways that you can fight back with depression and depression urges and um, fight against the isolation that, that, that it tends to create. It can be really frightening if someone confides in us that they're in crisis. What can mm -hmm. we do if we suspect our friend or a loved one is considering suicide? I know we tend to get really anxious when someone's talking to us about it, but I think we should also be holding on to the fact that, like, this is a really good thing. My job right now is to be present with them and see if I can understand a little bit better, see if there's something I can do to help them get through this. One of the things I've seen is then you're supposed to say, do you have a plan? Mm -hmm. And I was like, well, that's yeah. all That's all well and good. But if they say, yes, I do, what are you supposed to do? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's a super tough question. It's a really important question. So you've been thinking about it. How have you been thinking about doing it? You know, if, if they give you something, you know, say, well, where is that right now? Like, where are mm -hmm. those pills right now? Would you mind storing those somewhere else for tonight? If you do that, I would really appreciate it. I think like having them explain and then also like eventually sort of saying, could we do something else for tonight? Could you, could you store that elsewhere? Mm -hmm. But somebody's putting a lot of trust in you to you know tell you you know what their plan is or what they've been thinking about. Mm -hmm. If they have a plan and it's like, no, they're planning on doing it tonight and it's imminent, then it's time to call the Suicide Prevention Lifeline and get their advice about what to do next. Yeah. So. In the context of talking with them, I mean, is it helpful to say, well, I really don't want you to do that because I don't want to lose you or I like having you here or things like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. People have different responses to those kind of statements. You know, I still use them. I say, like, I just want you to know you're really important to me. I want you here. I want to help you get through this. I really want you to hold off on making decisions right now. Like that's, I think, really key. And that's what we know from the research that is super important. You know, would you please do this for me? 
you know, those are all things that, that I would use. For some people, that might make them really angry, and that's okay, you know. <laughs> um, you know, sometimes it's better to be angry than to be sad. You know, there's no perfect solution, you know, for this situation. But when people are, you know, saying, no, I'm not willing to hold off for 24 hours, or I don't think I can do it, you know, then's the time to say, all right, I'm coming over. <laughs> Um, or to call the suicide prevention lifeline or to get someone else on the phone with them. This kind of goes to a potential way to address some of this that you have explored and was actually done many decades ago and then sort of forgotten about. And you're one of the practitioners, but caring messages, is that what you call them? Yeah. Caring context. This was an intervention that, that was done many, many, many years ago, 30, 40 years ago, with people who were just leaving a psychiatric hospital after a suicide-related visit. Half of them got follow-up over mail. They got a letter in the mail. These letters were done over time, not just once. And they essentially just expressed care that the letter writer was holding space for that person and that that person mattered. The way I use and many others use this now is with text messaging. In the original study, the people who received these caring messages, you know, there were half as many suicides as there were in those that didn't get the caring messages. So, Wow. How can we use that technique in our own lives? I think one thing that you can do is take, you know, 60 seconds and think about who in your life has sort of like faded out a little bit. Who haven't you heard from that you used to hear from or who hasn't been on social media that used to be on? Who lost a job? Um, who's going through a divorce? Men especially, they're more likely to die by suicide and often in some ways have less connections. Who would those three people be? And then start sending them regular messages like, you know, hey, the game's on on Saturday. I'm going to be watching it. You want to watch it virtually with me? You know, I know this is out of the blue, but I I miss you. I'm thinking of you. What about after a crisis has passed? So I have a family member who has pushed aside my many attempts to urge her to seek therapy. And we've heard of long waits during the pandemic Mm -hmm. to get in with someone. So what can people do? Well, I think continuing to send those messages are you okay? Or are you going to therapy? Or can I help you get into therapy? That will be important even if you don't get a response. Like that's getting in the brain somewhere. So please do continue with that. In terms of getting into treatment and and supporting people, for the person who's open to it and they're really depressed or really struggling, if if you're open to it, if you're willing, go with them or help them set up that appointment. Look at Psychology Today. Call 15 people and take them to that appointment. You know, some providers won't talk to you unless the person's there, but maybe you have your friend on speakerphone and you do it that way. See if you can help get them to the appointment if they haven't been there before, as long as they're willing to do that. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can take this like really easy manner approach, like, hey, you know, it may not work, but like if I if I help make it happen for you, would you let me do that? That would be my Christmas present. I totally appreciate it. Like, that kind of approach. I think some people might believe like, oh, this isn't for me. That's only for people who have a lot of money. But there's all kinds of ways to access help, right? 
Definitely. And there's all different types of treatment providers and different type of interventions. There's online cognitive behavior therapy. Now, different places, primary care providers, they sometimes have lists of apps or tools that they can give to patients for free. Um, no guarantees, but it's worth asking about. Yeah, so there's different levels of intervention that can be done. Even like a social worker in primary care can help somebody manage like starting their depression medication and monitoring that as they go. And it, it doesn't hurt to, ha- to ask as well. And Dr. Whiteside, you're also involved with the Zero Suicide Initiative. What is that? This is a systems-based approach to providing better care for people at risk for suicide in health systems. What's really striking is that if you go into an emergency room anywhere in the country with symptoms of a cardiac event, the care that you receive will be strikingly similar. But for somebody who's coming in for suicidal thoughts, the person's experience is markedly different where they go. There may be an intervention, there may not, there may be an unintended intervention. And zero suicides helped create a new standard of care for people at risk for suicide such that the expectation is now that at minimal people will be asked about struggling with suicide they will receive safety planning which is an evidence-based tool a, a plan for what to do when a crisis arises and then they'll receive follow-up caring contact and that really all came out of the zero suicide initiative to say no we want everyone to have this experience and slowly but surely this will spread across the country so that care is more consistent, care is better, and continues to improve. There's much more with Dr. Ursula Whiteside at our website, peacetalksradio.com, as well as links to resources and her site, nowmattersnow.org. Look for our January 2021 episode at our website, peacetalksradio.com. And remember, if you are in crisis and need someone to talk to, you can text 741741 to reach a counselor at the crisis text line. You can also call the suicide hotline at 800-273-8255, 800-273-8255. Coming up on today's program, how journalists' jobs make them vulnerable to danger and trauma and tools to help them stay safe, right after this break. This is Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. We're online at peacetalksradio.com with all of the programs in our series dating back to 2002. Today's episode can be found on our website under January 2021. I'm series producer Paul Ingalls today along with Megan Kamrick. 
and our show's been about confronting suicide and understanding the pressure on news reporters in difficult times. The show is dedicated to our colleague and occasional Peace Talks radio host, Hannah Colton, who took her own life in November of 2020. She was just 29. When we think first responders, we probably think of firefighters or police, but journalists also tend to run toward danger, especially in 2020 and 2021 in the coronavirus pandemic, and that also makes them vulnerable to trauma. The DART Center for Journalism and Trauma was created to give journalists better tools to cover violence and tragedy, but its mission has expanded to help journalists deal with their own trauma around covering these events so they can continue doing their jobs which are vital to a functioning democracy. Bruce Shapiro is the executive director of the DART Center, and he spoke with Megan Kamrick. Around the world, journalists everywhere cover a huge amount of human distress. And it's not just frontline war correspondents uh, and not just cops reporters. You know, when there is a big police shooting, when there are events like we're speaking a day after the insurrection at the U.S. Capitol when there are violent protests like that. These are all hands-on-deck moments. And also, as young reporters, many of us, including me, my first assignments involved loss, involved murder victims, involved veterans coming back from war. We cover a lot, and all the research shows that journalists all over the world cover a lot of suffering, number one. Number two... We know, and this is actually good news, we now know from the research that on the whole, we as journalists are a pretty resilient tribe. Having a job to do in the face of mayhem and suffering, having craft skills, having ethical skills, having good colleagues, and having a clear mission, these are all protective factors and act as a buffer against the degree sometimes of psychological injury that you might expect. The challenge is that if we cover events which by themselves are significantly more horrifying or overwhelming or involve things like the deaths of children or are chronically threatening or resonate with other kind of biographical traumatic experiences we may have, the mechanisms of post-traumatic stress disorder, are the very mechanisms that we rely on most as news professionals. So it can become singularly toxic. You know, we rely on the accuracy and controllability of memory. Well, folks with PTSD often deal with intrusive memory, overwhelming floods of memory that are triggered and take up attention when it's not wanted. Or people with psychological injury may have anxious arousal, may be unable to concentrate, focus, to be there in the moment in the way that we as reporters need. Or folks may lose their ability to make empathetic connection, and we rely on that in a profound way. And that's consequential. When journalists lose their ability to function well because of post-traumatic stress disorder or because of burnout or other work-related occupational stress injuries. That's a kind of censorship. A, a journalist who's no longer able to meet a deadline or get on with sources or put together a story is censored 
as effectively as if imprisoned. How have all these things been exacerbated by the dangers journalists have faced in recent years from open hostility to the media? You know, it's so interesting. Ten years ago, in our work at the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma, when we were thinking about physical threats to journalists, those mostly involved um, the risks to frontline correspondents in war zones or in crisis areas, or perhaps investigative reporters who were specifically targeted um, by mobsters or, or oligarchs. That's completely changed. Um, when I go into newsrooms now, there are you know, local, completely apolitical police reporters and crime reporters who are subjected to torrents of abuse in the comment sections of news sites or digital threat and harassment. In journalism schools now, we need to teach our young reporters how to safeguard their digital identities and to safeguard their own families from threat and abuse. It's, it's become a legitimate part unfortunately, of our political culture to attack journalists. And this is adding levels of threat and stress to a profession that already is, you know, A, deals with all the trauma exposure I was just talking about, and B, is beleaguered by cuts to newsroom budgets, turmoil and disruption in the industry. The sense of being a profession under siege is very is emotionally really pretty challenging for a lot of journalists. We get into this, most of us, um, because of a public service mission. And if that mission is constantly being invalidated or is threatened and we're not being defended, that can leave us feeling more alone and isolated and can exacerbate or can become an added burden of threat. And I think the burden is all the more significant because in this kind of broader democratic crisis of American society right now, it's really striking how journalism is actually sort of the pathway out. I mean, a lot of people said, well, is there light at the end of the tunnel? And my view has become that actually reporting is the light to the end of the tunnel at a time when official science has been corrupted by political interest. It's left to journalism to be the capillary system for public health understanding. At a time when government communication has been corrupted by politics, it's left to journalists not only to ask the right questions, but to model a kind of engagement with these issues. The role of journalism in American society has never been more important than it is now as mediators of fact, as mediators of the social contract. And the reporters I talk to, though they don't use that kind of very elaborate, maybe even theoretical framework, are very aware of the importance of their work right now. And on the one hand, this is a source of a lot of stress a lot of worry. It's also a source of mission and a lot of resilience. And to the extent that folks in journalism can articulate that mission and share it with one another, and to the extent to which the public understands that and can express appreciation for the work of news professionals right now, I think it's a source of resilience. 
I think people don't understand how journalists work sometimes. They may not understand how deeply we can feel the things we cover, and it can be really difficult to turn this off at the end of the day and go about our lives. Honestly, most of us don't. How does DART advise journalists and their newsrooms to tackle this? So first of all, given all the pressures we've been talking about, given the threats against journalists, and given the general nature of our work and the importance of suffering in to, to so much of what reporters do. I think that right now, every reporter needs a little bit of a self-care plan. We need to be thinking about how to manage our trauma exposure. We need to be thinking about ways of lowering our neurological arousal with things like exercise and images in our head for shifting our own kind of personal context sometimes and maintaining the integrity of the mission. So we need self-care. Secondly, and this is crucial, all the literature on journalists and other trauma-facing professionals says that we need peer support. The single most important predictor of journalists' resilience in the face of trauma and overwhelming stress is social connection, is collegial support, and also extracurricular social connection. And whether it's as individuals or as colleagues in particular news organizations, we need to be thinking in a very deliberate way of building up peer support, building up collaboration. A number of news organizations now have actual journalist peer support networks where there are colleagues, like the Australian Broadcasting Corporation has one or two journalists in every office or bureau who is the like in-house peer supporter who's there to be a resource for their colleagues. And then finally, as an industry, we need to understand that these questions of self-care and peer support are not add-ons that reporters do in their spare time. We need to understand that contending with the impact of trauma and stress, building resilience in very specific ways, is as central to the journalist's toolkit as verifying quotes, as editing tape, as all the many other skills that we do every day. Journalists who don't incorporate self-care, news organizations that don't incorporate psychological support, peer support, uh, communities of journalists who don't take the sort of psychosocial support piece of what they do seriously, those are recipes for undermining journalistic effectiveness. It is not optional to the mission of journalism at a, in a time of crisis. This is Peace Talks Radio. I'm Megan Kamrick. I'm talking with Bruce Shapiro from the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma. So what are signs of burnout and too much trauma? So I, I think this is very important. And, I, you know, it's important to know that there's a difference between short-term distress and, and long-term trauma. A lot of us are going to have distress. A lot of us are going to in these times, as journalists, be frightened, or as journalists, be grieving, or as journalists, be very angry. And that's fine. That's part of being human. But the impact of trauma, the impact of unremitting occupational stress, are not subtle. They are not things that spent require years on the couch to identify. Whether it's in journalists or in any other trauma-facing 
profession. We look for changes in work performance or changes in social engagement that suggest impairment, things we're not doing as well as we should and know we can, and that are persistent, that go on for a month or more after a traumatic event or in the middle of a really difficult period of crisis. So, you know, reporters who are good with deadline usually and begin to blow it, or people who are normally pretty easy colleagues and suddenly start turning really gnarly and difficult, or reporters or editors who seem to be dissociating, losing the ability to concentrate. And all of these, not just for a day or two or a week, but over time, those kind of fall-offs in professional performance or those kind of changes in how we interact with people we care about, if they go on for some weeks, that's a, that's a reasonable early warning sign that trauma and unremitting open-ended stress in this period are taking their toll and you want to pay attention sooner rather than later because if left unaddressed or if left uninterrogated at least you know you can get into a really destructive really bad psychological spin cycle in which reporters may sometimes close in on themselves or may embrace risk as the only way to feel anything or may start to cut ethical corners or may simply get into horrible cycles of stress that make themselves and everyone else crazy around stories or may get completely demoralized or angry in ways, chronically angry in ways that undermine their work. You don't want your work to be undermined by psychological injury. So you do want to be paying attention sooner rather than later and taking steps. Sometimes those steps involve professional counseling uh, and trauma-informed psychotherapy has a very good track record in treating the kinds of psychological injury that journalists are subject to. But it's not just about therapy. Uh, For a lot of folks, taking up things like yoga meditation exercise or engaging in a very assertive way in self-care and support network kinds of plans can be very helpful. There's a lot you can do and we have tip sheets on the Dart Center website for anyone who's interested in that sort of stuff. The main thing is that we need to be taking control back. You know, what both the pandemic and psychological trauma can do to a journalist is uh, rob us of some control, rob us of agency over our own effectiveness, of agency over our own work as as journalists, and that 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 can be a profoundly demoralizing kind of personal crisis to have. So we want to take some control back over uh, our trauma exposure, engage in self-care find some ways of controlling our work lives and taking care of things during a period of extreme stress. We also, by the way, uh, need to be taking our own safety seriously and talking with colleagues um, in a very open and deliberate way about what are the risks we're facing now, whether they are digital threat and online harassment or 
having a few skills to handle volatile street demonstrations or what your news organization's policy is if you begin to get harassed online and making sure that there are protections in place. All of those are also really important ways of regaining a little bit of control and making us feel as news professionals a little more in control of our own lives. You know, the, the main thing is that if you feel yourself changing in ways that you don't like because of this work, or if you see it in colleagues, take it as an early warning sign of something that can be mitigated and addressed before it becomes a personal crisis or a newsroom crisis. That's such good advice because we can get extremely driven in a story and feel extremely responsible especially with shrinking resources, like, well, there's no one else doing this. I got to go do it and get in kind of a, a tunnel vision. I think the fact that you said your work will suffer, the quality of your work will suffer could resonate with journalists because that's the last thing they want to see happen. That to me is the core. Look, this is why we get into this work. If you believe in it, we need to take our own self-care as individuals and our collegial support as a community seriously. And if the public believes ultimately in the need of accurate information and the need for powerful storytelling and the need for journalists to speak truth to power and to bear witness for those who are at the losing end of the power equation, then the public too needs to understand just how consequential are the risks that news professionals take, even at the community level, to fulfill their responsibilities in our democratic, our still democratic society. You can find more with Bruce Shapiro of the DART Center for Journalism and Trauma at our website, peacetalksradio.com. In a moment, we're going to hear some clips from a couple of Peace Talks Radio episodes that Hannah Colton produced and hosted for us, so you can hear her skill and passion for the work of reporting and producing for yourself. That's next on Peace Talks Radio after this break. listening to Peace Talks Radio, the series on peacemaking and nonviolent conflict resolution. In November of 2016, I was at a radio conference in Chicago. A young reporter named Hannah Colton asked to meet with me. I was NPR's liaison to independent producers at the time. Hannah wanted to ask me how to make it as a freelance reporter, how to file stories, what shows were taking stories from freelancers, that kind of thing. Partway through our meeting, she mentioned that she was just about to move to New Mexico, where I lived and start freelancing for KUNM, the station where I used to work, in Albuquerque. 
She arrived in New Mexico not long after that, and once I heard Hannah's work just a few times on the air, I approached her about producing and hosting some episodes of our Peace Talks radio series. She agreed, and lucky for us, she produced a couple of excellent episodes in 2018 before moving on to work full-time with KUNM News. And as we said, Hannah committed suicide in November 2020, nine months after becoming the station's interim news director. The first of her two Peace Talks radio programs explored peacemaking messages in hip-hop music. Among Hannah's passions were music and peace and justice. Here's a clip from her interview in that episode with rapper Brother Ali. What are the issues around violence specifically that you wanted to address with that album? I think there's a number of them. That I think the most obvious and, and outward one is uh, I have a song that I wrote to my son called Dear Black Son. Um, and this one deals with watching him make the transition in the eyes of society from being a cute little kid to being a black man and seeing the way that people navigate him and you know hold space with him seeing that change a lot uh, because i know that the world doesn't see him the way that i see him let me show you how to move when the laws approach you it's best to keep your hands where they can see them and try to understand that you're not even what they're peeping they don't see a sweet kid that loves his little sister their mind is seeing 500 years of pictures in fact they don't to me he's a sweet kid um but so are all these other you know that's the way that I see all these other people that are being killed by the police, these other young black men that are being killed by the police, you know. You know, people, a lot of white people who haven't explored hip hop might think of it as, you know, glorifying misogyny, sex, money, fame. I mean, it's easy for a lot of people to fall back on those stereotypes. Um, but but you talk about the genius of hip hop and really honoring um, the black culture that it comes from. I mean, why do you why do you think that that in particular is important to to spread and for people to understand? You know, the enslaved Africans and their children have provided all of the cultural expression that have come from this project of America. Corporations saw that, okay, this is another thing that black people have created that America is ready to accept. So they basically come in and they say, you know, there's one type of music that we're going to push. And it's a sp very specific strain of what they would call gangster rap. You know, there were definitely were decisions that were made about which parts of this music will reach the radio and which won't. Uh, so, f you know, you still have artists that do really amazing work uh, that are making really incredible hip hop music that, that are about, you know, beauty and dignity and joy and love and they're humorous and all of the parts of a complex human being are still coming through this music. Uh, but that's not the music that reaches the radio. And there's there, there clearly were really intentional decisions that were made to do that, to make it that way. Brother Ali, could you recommend one or two great hip-hop peace songs for our listeners to check out? The most important one to me is um, a song called Self-Destruction. Uh, KRS-One and his DJ was actually a social worker. Uh, Scott LaRock, and they were working on a song called Stop the Violence and a movement about Stop the Violence. While they were working on that, Scott LaRock, he got shot. Um, and so KRS-One brought together all of the big name rappers on the East Coast that he could get in a room at one time 
and they made a, a song like a, this big kind of like you know we are the world type of song where knowledge is forming, you learn to be self-sufficient, independent, to teach to each is what rap intended, but society wants to invade, so do not walk this path that they laid, it's self-destruction, There was a book that came along with it, and a lot of good was done, and so on the West Coast, there was a, uh, a, an effort that was uh, inspired by that called We're All in the Same Gang. I also would say that there's one that women did, headed by Queen Latifah, called Ladies First. It would be easy to make a two-hour playlist of songs that are about, you know, peace and peacemaking. You know, the, the tradition is just really rich with that. Maybe we'll ask you to do that sometime, make that playlist. That'd be cool. Who said that the ladies couldn't make it? You must be blind if you don't believe what here listens to this rhyme. Ladies first, there's no time to rehearse. I'm divine and my mind expands throughout the universe. A female rapper with the... Hannah Colton talking with Brother Ali. And you can hear that whole peacemaking and hip-hop program at peacetalksradio.com. It was our June 2018 episode. The other program Hannah Colton hosted and produced for us explored the violence of whiteness. She spoke with radio producer John Bewin audio director at the Duke University Center for Documentary Studies. He produced a podcast series in 2017 called Seeing White that went deep into how whiteness was created and has functioned throughout hundreds of years of history. Again, here's our dear late colleague, Hannah Colton, pursuing justice through journalism, interviewing John Bewin. In the final episode of the podcast, I believe you're talking with your co-host or collaborator, Chandraya Kumunyika, and you're saying all it takes to uphold this society that has been founded on white supremacy is for, you know, quote unquote, good white people to go about their lives like business as usual. Can you explain that a little? Yeah. And I think to complete what I said, I think I said um, all it takes for our white supremacist society to perpetuate itself is for good white people to go about our lives being good non-racists. Because the way that we typically think about race in America is as a, it's a problem of personal attitudes and personal behaviors. So the question that we're constantly uh, preoccupied with is, is that individual person a racist or not? Am I a racist or not? Meaning, you know, am I a member of the KKK? Uh, do I use the N-word? Am I mean to people of color? You know, stuff like that, right? But that's not what racism is. It's not that those things don't matter at all. They do. But it's much more a matter of a structural systemic situation that would take a more fundamental change in our institutions. So if I go, so in other words, if I go about my life smiling at the black people that I encounter in my day-to-day life and... um, you know, ha- having an occasional dinner with a black person or not, or let's say even, you know, not, not hesitating to send my kids to school with children of color. That's uh, all fine, but that's not going to change the structure of our society. We need deeper changes than that. What's a takeaway for listeners in terms of how to take steps towards uh, systemic change on racial justice? Yeah, I think probably the biggest and most tangible things that need to happen probably need to happen at a governmental level. Government policy, the way our institutions function, 
you know, so just things like, uh, you know, the criminal justice system or what Chenjerai Kumanyika called our so-called criminal justice system, the deep structural inequities in who gets policed and who gets punished and so on and so forth. For example, or the education system, the way that we allow ourselves to have this deeply unequal and unequal in a racialized way education system, right? So those kinds of big institutions in our society really need to be rebuilt. But then there are also things like that we consider in the last episode of the of the series, like reparations, um, or um, things that would help address in the present um, the deep inequalities in in wealth that come out of our history. So a job guarantee, or Sandy Darity, who works at Duke here, the Economist has an idea about a baby bonds proposal where children would be given a bond, basically kind of a trust fund. And that would be, you know, if you were historically, like if you were a descendant of enslaved black people, you would get a bigger trust fund than if you're a comfortable white person, right? So these will sound to a lot of people like radical ideas, but if you were really going to make steps to, and actually a job guarantee now polls quite well, meaning that it would be sort of like the... Um, WPA in, in the Great Depression, where anybody who wants a job and can't find one, the government would provide one. These are big, expensive programs. We do a lot of big, expensive things, including a trillion-dollar tax cut that we say we don't have the money for, but we find it, right? So if we wanted to really address the deep inequalities that have come from this history and that persist, um, these are some of the things that we, we could be looking at. That's radio producer John Bewin talking with our colleague Hannah Colton. Hear that whole episode at our website, peacetalksradio.com. Look for the November 2018 episode there. That was released just two years before Hannah took her own life at the age of 29 in November of 2020. And again, this program today has been dedicated to Hannah. We looked at suicide prevention and explored the very real pressures on journalists to cover difficult news. To hear this program again or share it with others, look for the January 2021 episode of our series at peacetalksradio.com. Now to close, here again is our correspondent and colleague of Hannah's in the KUNM News Department, Megan Kamrick. Hannah left a short note before she died, and one of the things she wrote was that people should not report on the means she used to take her life. I asked her mother if I could share this fact because it speaks volumes about her and about our profession. Hannah understood the harm media can cause, and she knew the ethical guidelines journalists are supposed to follow in reporting on suicide, and one of those is to not go into detail about methods. The National Alliance on Mental Illness notes that numerous studies have found that certain types of news coverage can increase the likelihood of suicide in vulnerable individuals, and detailing methods is one of the worst things media can do. This last missive from Hannah is especially profound for me. Even in the worst moment of her life, she was committed to the ideals of good ethical journalism. We will strive to continue her work. Thank you.